Hello, I'm Oliver Wong, flying solo today. Shout out to co-host Morgan Rhodes, who will be back soon. You are, by the way, listening to Heat Rocks. Ooh, it's hot. (laughs) Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about Heat Rock. That is an album that sizzles. And today, we are firing up the rockets to fly back 35 years to talk about Herbie Hancock's 1974 album, Thrust. Herbie Hancock came into 1974 riding a bolt of lightning. His Headhunters album from the previous fall ruled the charts well into 74, and its heavy dose of funk elements colored in swatches of cutting-edge synthesizers didn't just make a splash in the jazz world, but it rocked the pop charts too as Hancock's first platinum seller. By that summer, he was back in the same San Francisco studio with most of the same players and assembled another four-track LP in a similar jazz-funk fusion vein. This one he named Thrust, and whether the title was inspired by Hancock's ongoing exploration of Afrofuturist themes or just an apt metaphor for the velocity of his early 70s career, Thrust yielded Herbie yet another best-selling jazz album and further cemented him as one of the era's most consistent commercial and creative forces. Thrust was the album pick of our guest today, Jason Concepcion. A few years ago, in the halcyon pre-2016 days of Twitter, before it descended into the morass of outrage and despair it is today, I started following an oddly titled account named Network that's spelled with a three in place of the second E, written by someone who I thought was a social media comic genius, and I swear to God, that that's meant as a compliment. <laughs> who seem to have equal love for Game of Thrones, Corgis, and for some inexplicable reason, the New York Knickerbockers. Jason eventually came out west from his native New York City, where he is now part of the mighty ringer hive mind, and he's done everything from recap the entirety of Game of Thrones in podcast form. He's currently one of the senior succession and Mindhunter analysts, and just this year won a sports Emmy for his NBA desktop, which should be returning by the time this podcast airs. He also, as he just reminded me, has a background in music and originally studied to be a film composer. So this seems very apropos as a conversation. Let's go. Jason, you are already one-fourth your way to an EGOT. Welcome to Heat Rocks. That's right. The thing about the EGOT, though, is you got to get the weird ones out of the way first. So the Grammy is obviously the hardest. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get there. You know, James Corden, I think, can get it. He's the guy. He's the next guy who I think can get it because yeah. he, got the, he got the Tony out of the way. Yeah. I think the Oscar one is going to be the tough one. Probably. But he's got the rest of his career. He could go for maybe an Oscar in some technical field that we just... That's the thing. He could be a screenwriter, He could do a Kobe thing where it's like he back, you know, best animated feature, you know, as a producer and kind of get in in the back door. (laughs) (laughs) So when it came to figuring out what you were going to pick for this, I realized even though I'm so familiar with Mm -hmm. you for your basketball work, but I didn't have a great sense of what your musical taste would be. So it's not like I had heavy expectations on whatever you might choose. But I have to say that Herbie Hancock's Thrust probably would not have made the top 100 albums I might have guessed that you were going to pick. 
So why this particular album? What makes it a heat rock for you? Well, a lot of my musical tastes depend on stuff I can write to, mm. right, currently. So I'm listening to a lot of uh, different interpretations of the Goldberg Variations by Bach right now for writing. I listen to a lot of like mid-60s Miles Davis for writing. And Thrust is this uh, perfect Venn diagram of no words. So I can just kind of like zone out when I listen to it. And... Uh, stuff that I have a deep emotional attachment to because of like a journey I went on. So this is kind of like a, when I went to college, I went to Berkeley College of Music, got very into jazz because you kind of have to. So I was listening to a lot of like uh, Bill Evans, Mm -hmm. Jim Hall, like John Coltrane, which I love, but is also so ethereal and analytical and it's like get the chord chart out what are they doing you know what inversions are they using and it's was so academic that when i discovered funk i it was just like a relief so i got very into like (laughs) p-funk and parliament and stuff like that and then just was like okay give me everything that came out at that time I'm going to go on this funk journey. Let me let me find uh, Tower Power. Yeah. Let me find uh, Simondi. Mm-hmm. And then I found Headhunters, which was the 1973 Herbie Hancock album that you uh, that you noted, which is kind of like quote unquote the famous one. It's got. Um, I mean, it, it's a bestseller, huge it, album, huge. I mean, think about a time when jazz albums were in the top ten of the Billboard charts. Right. That just doesn't happen anymore. Right, right. The seventies were super weird. You know, there was like porno movies in the top ten of the of the box office charts. Also, so it was a time when kind of like the space between high and low culture had kind of completely evaporated. Right. And that's part of what I really appreciated about Herbie's uh, discography during this time. So Headhunters comes in and it's quote unquote, the pop version of the one of this great backbeats. Very, it's, it's all about the beat and about um, texture. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that I love about thrust was it brought that kind of the complexity of jazz and married it in my view perfectly to the beat And another difference was uh, they brought in Mike Clark on drums yes. uh, to team with Paul Jackson, two Oakland funk guys. And Oakland funk is really characterized by a, you know, like the the importance of just playing in that pocket. Right. Being in that super tight. Super, 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 super tight drums and bass, like handcuffed to each other. Now, when you take the kind of swing drum style of jazz with the kind of tight pocket bass of funk, what is going to happen. And to me, what happens is that, is, is in particular, the second track off this album, um, Actual Proof, which um, to me like presages some of the, the drum and bass movement of like the mid-90s, early 2000s. Um, it's just a perfect record for me in terms of beat, in terms of uh, melodic exploration and, and uh, textural exploration. And it's just an album that you can leave on. I think it, like fusion is in a lot of ways like a bad word. Sure. I mean, especially amongst a certain kind of cadre of jazz purists, it definitely is a bad word. And that's kind of what I like about it. This is before, this is like, <laughs> this is a real kind of like genre bending exploration 
in a sincere way before you got the kind of like overwrought, like weather reporty uh, Mahavishnu orchestra, like kind of stuff that would eventually become smooth jazz. Yeah. Like this was when real exploration was in jazz was vital. In a lot of ways, it was like the last gasp before smooth jazz kind of like absolutely erased what was kind of cool about mm. these explorations. So I got to spin back on a couple of these things. Sure. Let's start with this. Is You are saying that a song like Actual Proof off of this yeah, yeah. album is effectively proto-drum and bass. Yeah. Like, all you got to do is take the BPM and, and bump it up, like, by 15 to 20. And, and that's drum and bass in the middle of this track when it really gets simmering. Some intrepid listener should certainly go out there and compare what you just heard mm -hmm. with uh, with '90s drum and bass and see and see if you if you find the similarities there. I'm also wondering though if we could actually go back into your personal listening history. Sure. So if you didn't really discover funk or at least this era of funk until you were already well into college, yeah. What was a young teenage Jason Rockin? What were you listening to as a kid? I was listening to like classic rock and then like, like the, the Zeppelin rock and roll Stones. of the day, like okay. Zeppelin. Uh, I was listening to uh, like the freaking Eagles. Okay. I was listening to like uh, Van Halen, which like, here's the thing about Eddie Van Halen, actual genius, truly a person who wedded um, technical virtuosity with a real kind of like curiosity about the way electronics work. Mm. Like... Forget what you know about like David Lee Roth and Sam Hagar, et cetera. Look at some of the instrumental tracks that they that he created, like Cathedral off of um, Diver Down. Terrible album. <laughs> Cathedral is a melodically layered piece using volume pot swells and delay to create essentially what is like a cello piece. The guy was like legit. Legit is a musician at that time. So I was like very into that. I was very into like anybody who was like doing different things with sounds a guitar or an, any instrument could make. Yeah. And I was listening to like jam band music also. Like I was like, how can you be? So this is like, you know, late 90s, right? When grunge was really the thing. Right. How can you be a musician in that milieu? And that what I found was like, jam band stuff and you know this kind of like weird um kind of like psychedelic music so right. it was like how do how can i how can i be a musician on the guitar like during this time and this that was like the thing i was going through at that time well it also it strikes me that that description of eddie van halen as marrying technical virtuosity with an, an interest or curiosity about 
electronic and technical, uh, sorry, technological innovation, yeah. you could really apply the very same thing to what Herbie Hancock was doing throughout this entire era because yes, that's the thing. I he's like. got like five synths on this album, right? Five synths, like very into the ARP at that time. Yeah, ARP so is the ARP, heavy on this. ARP is heavy on this, and ARP is you know like state of the art synthesizer for the seventies and le- legitimately fills a room. Like it looks like. Uh, you actually need a person to come in and switch like the the chords like in the middle of stuff. <laughs> uh, sounds super cool and super retro, but also was just like a state of the art uh, machine at the time. And that was like I I, I really loved that kind of thing. You know, like Herbie um, got very into um, really at Miles's urging electric piano and Rhodes piano. Um, you know, Miles was always like. He tried to make Keith Jarrett to do it too, and Keith Jarrett like hated it. Herbie initially resisted it, but then got very, very into it and explored it in that. And I, um, I really appreciate people who want to explore the technical as well as the kind of like more rote, traditional, like melodic and rhythmical sides of of music making. And if listeners are curious as to how to distinguish the ARP from, let's say, the Rhodes, to yeah. me, and not every use of the ARP has this particular sound, but. Whenever I think of the sound of the ARP synthesizer, it's always much more of this high-pitched, almost kind of whine. You really have to dis- disentangle because I feel like there's quite a few things perhaps yes. overdubbed there because you can hear some of the the more mellow Rhodes piano in the background. I'm going to talk more about the Rhodes in a moment. Um, but again, Herbie was really open to playing with a lot of different sounds, yeah. a lot of different keyboards. I don't think this is outrageous to say at all that he, to me, reminds me of being the jazz equivalent to what Stevie Wonder was doing in the world of R&B and soul because, you know, Stevie, I think more than perhaps any other artist of his ilk, he brought the clavinet yeah. into the game. And the clavinet yeah. is on this album as yes. well. That was a big clavinet uh, to create that kind of like funky, almost like waka chica, you exactly. know, like guitar yeah. sound was a huge technical and textural innovation in this kind of music. Since we've been talking a little bit about Herbie and just maybe dropping a little bit deeper into his his kind of career arc, especially in this moment, I think what's notable about Thrust and about Headhunters is that it comes really in this, if you look at the grand 20-year span, mm-hmm. it comes about a decade after he begins recording as primarily an acoustic piano player. Mm-hmm. He's recording for Blue Note Records. His sound is very, very much hard bop of that time. Yeah. And then 10 years after Thrust, you get to your moment, you get to his moment with Future Shock and the, the song Rocket, which I think a lot of people probably, if they're of my generation at least, if you yeah. were introduced to Herbie Hancock, it was really through Future Shock and through Rocket because of its embrace of proto hip hop. So I feel like this album with Thrust is 
this is you can you can draw this line maybe it's not perfectly linear but you can draw this line from watermelon 62 to rocket in 82 or 83 and thrust oh, kind of shows you where he's going along this grand arc yeah herbie had been embracing kind of like this me- this melding of r&b for lack of a better word styles for quite a long time um and i think the thing about thrust on this arc is it's part of a general trend towards how how virtuosic can we get that I think was happening in music, um, popular music on the whole at that time. You right. know, like uh, the Beatles had created this thing of like how virtuosic can we get in a studio? And yeah. next thing you know, you have Queen, who's are multi-layering uh, full operatic styles. And right. you have ELO, ELO that are taking it to the next level of that. That creates a backlash, which is punk. And then next thing you know, R&B kind of takes a hard shift and becomes like proto hip hop and then hip hop proper. Um, and I think that you're, you're for thrust, you're really uh, it's a snapshot of a time when that trend line of how much more technical, how much more virtuosic can we be was still kind of trending up. And it was really interesting to me before all that stuff kind of got swept away. I think when you when you um, played that clip of his some of his arp riffs, the thing that I realized is like those are really kind of like horn stabs. Like if you were gonna, if you were um, writing out the chart of that, and we're kind of gonna arrange that for an orchestra, like those were like, bop, 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 bop. those are like horn lines. Right. And the thing that became, you know, the thing that became soft jazz was like the synthesizer people who were you know using synthesizers were like would eventually were like, oh, what if we actually did horn sounds? What if we actually made it sound like horns? And then that. People were like, oh, that's cheesy. That's terrible. Um, you know, that kind of like weather report, Joe Zawinoli kind of like actual horn shit. Yeah. Um, became the thing that you know, people absolutely rejected and was not cool. But to me, was cool at this time because it was like horn sounds, but not horns. So I have so many questions that, that stem out of this. So you're yeah. arguing then in a way, if it's a backlash or a paring down. So in the world of rock, all of this kind of virtuosic work ends up creating the inverse of that, which is super raw, and that's punk music, yeah. right? Hip hop, you could argue that uh, by the time, especially you get into like the Run DMC era, the, and with the use of drum machines, this is a reaction to uh, the influence of disco and kind of disco's mm. excesses, if you will. And in jazz, you're saying that there is a comparable backlash, except it doesn't produce something that very cool. Yes, exactly. You know, I think the 70s are interesting because it's like, there's a lot of like philosophical soul searching for what is like the actual true essence of the genre. Mm. So in rock and roll, it was like, how do we, you know, if I'm a kid starting out and I listen to ELO or Queen, I'll never be able to do that. So like, what can I do? And then you have television and fucking talking heads and the mm-hmm. Ramones or whatever. And I think of the similar thing, it was kind of different in jazz, which was, Oh, I'll never reach the level of virtuosity that Herbie Hancock has. I'll never be as a uh, legend like Miles Davis. But like if I just put funky drums behind a thing and kind of have like kind of jazzy changes, now I'm like the Yellow Jackets and like at least we can like tour Japan and stuff and play like at, at wineries. <laughs> and that's a career. Um <laughs> It's two different kinds of rejection, but like one is kind of like settling for a thing and the other is like a, a search for like the true essence of it. I mm-hmm. think, you know, um, in a lot of ways, jazz has been kind of like placed in amber uh, ideologically. Yeah. You know, there's this idea of um, 
as soon as like people went electric, it's like almost the Bob Dylan thing. But as soon as people yeah. went electric, like jazz went away. It really is like upright bass, piano, and right. like horn. kind of the Wynton Marsalis school of of jazz traditionalism, which holds which holds uh, power. It's still sure. you know jazz sure. at Lincoln Center is like a is the Wynton Marsalis philosophy of what jazz is, and um, you know, to get back to Herbie, what I love about this record is here's a vitality in a in in experimentation before the kind of like Winton Marsalian argument had really taken yeah, taken, taken hold, hold and frozen an entire genre essentially in people's minds. We were talking earlier about the notion of whether fusion is used as a bad word. And I think it obviously depends on who you're speaking to, but I think within what you're describing here, the particular politics, uh, the ideological traditions yeah. uh, within jazz, fusion, I think more often than not, is seen as being very much a negative. And this is something I was thinking about in terms of how I came to discover this particular sound and era. And a lot of it was coming directly out of me growing up as a DJ and as a record collector. And really, I think record collector sounds even too too polished. I was crate digging in the 90s, like a lot of people who were really into yeah. hip hop and were looking for samples. And so, uh, you know, as a result of that, you would end up almost, there's no way that you could have avoided having a shit ton of milk crates full of fusion records yeah. because this is what people were using. So whether or not, and this is all from the same era in the 1970s. So uh, I'm thinking of everything that includes stuff by, you, we've been talking about like the weather report, for example. It certainly includes a lot of what people described as rare groove, which is very much that late 60s, early 70s, blue note and prestige style. Or if you're in your early 20s and you're dead broke, you just pile up yeah. a lot of uh, dollar bin CTI and Kudu records. But as time goes by, the bragging rights of owning shit that Diamond D sampled for like two bars just didn't really necessarily seem like enough of a reason to keep this unless you were really into the sound itself. And I think for me, at least, it, I don't mind admitting that it just it didn't really age well for me. Mm -hmm. And I remember back in 2006, which is uh, the summer that I, I moved from the Bay Area back down here to Los Angeles, I had a stoop sale of just purging records that I didn't want to have to bother packing and shipping. And I think probably like 80 percent of those were fusion jazz LPs that I just felt like I, I'm never going to be listening to like, let's say, this Lonnie Liston Smith LP again. Um, I just don't need to keep it around. And so. It's not that I reject fusion as an idea because I want to feel mm -hmm. like I can embrace a lot of stuff, but there is something about the sound that as time goes by, 
and I feel like maybe this was part of the debate at the time, I wasn't really there to hear it, is that there was a lot about fusion that people just weren't into then and and still now. And do you have a sense of what it is that people are reacting to so negatively? Yeah, I think that there is a, when the groove overpowers the kind of improvisational elements, I think that that is when you start tipping the balance into mm. something that is just kind of like background music, is, mm. is more kind of like a smooth jazz idea, which I think is not, to me, is not a thing that's happening in, in, in this record where Herbie is, you know, being so forceful and like trying out different sounds and layering different ideas and there's like odd time shit happening and like there's real real busyness in the rhythm section but also a tightness that is really interesting. I think that when you, um, when it start getting, started getting pared down into just kind of like, just groove with kind of like a, a hint of a melodic idea mm. and some kind of like organ or road stabs just because I think that's the thing that people rejected. It just was, it just, and I kind of agree with this. It was just kind of easy. You know, there was mm -hmm. no experimentation there. It was just like, let's, here's a groove. Here's a backbeat. Here's a, a cool bass line mm. or a kind of a cool, semi-interesting bass line with yeah. just like the hint of a melody on top of it. And that's a song and that's a record and we'll probably make some money off of this. It's interesting because I actually think I approach it personally from the other direction, which is that a lot of the fusion that I couldn't hang with over time is stuff that I think is just best described as being very noodling, which is mm. ill-defined, but you kind of know it when you hear it, which just sounds like a bunch of people like just endlessly playing riffs or whatever, you know, over I, a bass line. I think that that is the overwroughtness. It is such a balance because that's true, too. Like there's the over noodling and the over uh kind of a complexity of the thing which is like you know return to forever and stuff which is like these like middle riffs that just kind of like go on forever and there's like the third movement and now the fourth movement and now like the <laughs> fucking organ solo and now we're gonna go to the it seems like crazy to be like actual proof is great it is very tight at nine minutes but <laughs> for that era was very tight. Like, you know, you look at some of these Return to Forever albums, it's like you got a 20-minute fucking song on there with, like, five movements. <laughs> um, there was at least some kind of a ruthlessness that was still evident for me in Thrust. This is, and again, this is the end of the line for yeah. me. This is, this is the moment, 1974 Thrust, where this is as far as you can take it. And now you need to figure out something different. We will be back with more of our conversation with Jason Concepcion about Herbie Hancock's thrust after we hear from some of our fellow Max Fun sibling podcasts. Keep it locked. This is Amy Mann. And I'm Ted Leo. And we have a podcast called The Art of Process. We've been lucky enough over the past year to talk to some of our friends and acquaintances from across the creative spectrum to find out how they actually work. And so I have to write material that makes sense and makes people laugh. I also have to think about what I'm saying to people. If I kick your ass, I'll make you famous. The fight to get LGBTQ representation in the show. Mm -hmm. We weirdly don't know as many musicians as you would expect. I really just became a political speechwriter by 
accident of realizing that I have accidentally uh, pulled my pants down. <laughs> Listen and subscribe at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcast. It's like if the guinea pig was complicit in helping the scientist. Well, Alexis, we got big news. Uh-oh. Season one, done. It's over. Season two, coming at you hot. Three years after. <laughs> three right season three one. Now. Technically right. almost four years. All right. And now, listen, here at Can I Pet Your Dog, the Smash yes. It podcast, our seasons run for three and a half years. <laughs> and then in season two, we come at you with new hot co-hosts named you. Hi, I'm Alexis. <laughs> also have, uh, field trip. Dog tech. Yeah. Dog news. Dog news. Celebrity guests. Oh, big shots. Will not let them talk about their resume. Nope. Only yeah, the dogs. Only the dogs. I mean, if ever you were going to get into Can I Pet Your Dog? Now's the time. Get in here every Tuesday at MaximumFun.org. We are back on Heat Rocks talking about Herbie Hancock's 1974 album Thrust with our guest, Jason Concepcion. Jason, before we dip back in the album, I feel like it would be remiss if we didn't get into at least a little bit of basketball, oh, given that we have a, a senior a senior NBA mind here. Let's go. And one of the questions I had for you is that I think one of the major narratives that we hear about the NBA right now is that it's turned into a 365 league, mm. uh, especially with all the intrigue that you see in the offseason and 2019 might be the, the, the capstone of that. I certainly don't disagree with with the assertion insofar as I spend way too much time, especially in the offseason, you know, reading NBA Reddit, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, and I, I'm just thinking of this as, you know, my day job is as a sociologist. And so if there is a shift in the cultural phenomena, I'm mm. always wondering like what what has influenced that? And so with this and the idea of the NBA expanding its cultural influence and its social import, is it a combination or which one of these things is legit? Is it because the media and especially the role of social media has changed to keep stories of, uh, you know, a constant stream? Is it, does it have to do with changes in the game itself mm. that people are more interested in it? Or does it have to do with particular conglomeration of, of personalities that we have that makes it appealing. And I'm wondering, what, what, what is your explanation for how has the NBA made this shift into a 365 way? That's a great question. I think it. I think at the root of it, if you're going to trace this kind of trend back to its beginning, I think you have to talk about the NBA's kind of initial decision, which is kind of born of necessity as the fifth most important sport like when when it started in the 50s in the 40s and 50s the nba was not on the map at all yeah. and the way they decided they were going to hype up their sport was that they were going to promote individual players there's a famous picture of the minnesota lakers the minneapolis lakers playing the knicks at madison square garden it says mike and versus knicks right george mike and was the original superstar of the league so it's this idea of let's promote the players there's only uh, 10 players on the court at any given time. And that kind of like personality, that became right. the kind of personality driven thing that, uh, you know, reached a kind of culmination with like Magic versus Bird that really saved the league. Or Dr. J before that. Dr. J before that. Yeah. And a, a kind of like perfect marrying of style and, and, and substance. So that created the kind of entry point for what social media, this kind of like so, rise of social media then um, perfectly amplified, which is a personality-driven uh, league where you can, your entry point can be talking about analyzing stats and and actual like game information or being like, I like the way this player does this move. Kind of like this aesthetic way of, of, 
of engaging with League. So that's one is the kind of personality driven thing that happened that was with the roots of the game. And then I think the fact that the NBA has been since the rise of the Internet really hands off with its content. I think that might be changing a little bit now. Mm. But, um, you know, the NFL and the MLB, you can't retweet or repurpose some game clip with you know your own music and make a meme out of it they'll take it down mm. the nba has been like do whatever do do what you want and so that is kind of like hyper you know that's i think scary in a certain sense because you're you're giving away agency to a bunch of different uh, act to basically the internet and who knows like what their intentions are yeah but what that's done is created this entire ecosystem of uh internet discourse around the league and it's uh really made it interesting and vital and and a, and almost like a meta way to follow a sport. Right. And I hope this is not too facile of a comparison, but what you just said instantly made me think of this idea of take it, run with it however you want. That's so hip hop. And yeah. it's not coincidental that most of the people that I came up with who are all hip hop fans, their favorite sport, their favorite American sport at least, is is basketball. I mean, far more so than football or hockey or baseball. And and it's not I'm not saying anything new in terms of the relationship sure. between hip hop and basketball, especially from the personalities. But the idea that from a content point of view, the ways in which NBA content circulates yeah. amongst us has that kind of just go with it, like do yeah. whatever you want with it. Yeah, I think that that is that's the lens through which to view this and why NBA discourse is kind of like different than any other sport, really, yeah. is that. The open-handedness that the league has thus far right. um, taken with uh, their content with. They've l allowed people to use it and repurpose it in ways that are really interesting. Can you imagine any timeline in which the NBA overtakes the NFL mm. as, as the most popular American sport? No, uh, not. Could it happen? Yes. I think that there are obviously structural things that the NFL is dealing with that are hampering both uh, the quality of the game and the way people view it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that the, you know, I was talking about this with some friends last night, you know, like 12 years ago, there'd be a massive tackle, some huge hit, and you'd be like, yeah, right. get him. And now, now that happens. CT, right? yeah, yeah, now it happens, and you're like, oh, man, I hope that guy's okay. Right. I think that that is a structural issue that the league is going to have to deal with. But football is massively popular, massively, massively, massively popular. I think it will be generations before that is even a thing that we would think about. You know, will will football wane in popularity? Sure. I think that um, as we learn more about CT and and its role in the game, I think um, that will happen. But I, I think it'll be a long, long time before the NBA um, overtakes football, at least in this country. Yeah. You know. Well, hard shift back to talking to about thrust here mm -hmm. but coming back to herbie hancock and his album if you had to pick and this is only a four track album so that you know there's a there's a one in four shot here mm -hmm. uh what would you pick out of that quartet what would be your fire track my fire track is actual proof because yeah. it is the um it's to me the one time really the the pinnacle of uh marrying jazz and pocket funk yeah. in a way that is interesting not over nudely has the kind of like core characteristics of both mike clark is doing this little swing thing in the hi-hat uh, but also like paul jackson is somehow holding down what is this, like a really pocket bass line yeah. um and it works it would never ever work again <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it ever worked again 
Um, but it, it, but to me, that is, that is, it's a magical, it, it's a magical track. There's also like a weird odd, I think it's like a, like a measure of five in there. I don't know how all that stuff works, but it does manage to work. Um, and that to me is the track. The music historian in me just loves learning about discographic backgrounds. And this song, I think, is also perhaps the most interesting of the four songs on here, partly because it begins life as the theme song to the black exploitation film from 73 that Hancock was hired to do the music for, which is The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Which Controversial film. Yeah, because it's all about basically like the CIA's infiltration yeah. of, of black radical movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it actually in a lot of ways feels very contemporary now. Yeah. Um, and there's actually also, and we're talking earlier about the instrumentation that Herbie Hancock is using. So we were talking about the, the, the bank of ARP, of ARP synthesizers, but also there's a lot of Fender Rhodes electric piano here. And that's the instrument that Jason was mentioning that Miles Davis introduced Herbie to. And a lot of jazz players were getting into the sound of the Fender Rhodes, which is very warm. People describe it as being bell-like. Once Mm -hmm. you hear it, you'll know what it sounds like. It's kind of like a Wurlitzer, but somehow even more suffused with this kind of warmth. And in 73, CBS Records uh, teamed up with uh, Herbie Hancock to produce a flexi-disc, which was basically a flexible plastic phonograph record that I want to say was shipped in issues of probably Downbeat, maybe some other jazz magazines. And it was a demonstration album, or I should say a demonstration single of Herbie Hancock talking about what makes the Fender Rhodes electric piano so useful and important and all the things it can do. And he actually talks in this flexi-disc about the song, the theme song to The Spook Who Sat uh, By The Door, he talks about how this song is a song that he's basically re-recording or repurposing for his upcoming album, mm. which means thrust in yeah. this case. And we can take a listen to a quick clip of him talking about this and then playing us the song that eventually would be called Actual Proof. Earlier this year, I wrote the soundtrack to a film called The Spook Who Said By The Door. And we re-recorded it for our latest album. And we had a lot of fun doing it and here's a short segment of the theme song from the spook who sat by the door so the original version of actual proof back when was uh, the spook who sat by the door featured a uh, drummer uh, Harvey Mason, who had played on Headhunters, yeah. but Harvey couldn't join the group on tour or in the recording studio, which is how Mike Clark came into the yeah. game because him and, and bassist Paul Jackson were old friends. And so they ended up re-recording the song, this time with Mike Clark on drums. And Mike, in the liner notes to one of the reissues of this album, talks about how um, the title, Actual Proof, was influenced by a Buddhist concept. And Mike, before he went into the studio, uh, went to an empty room Chanted for 20 minutes. 70s, man. You know, exactly, right? <laughs> Came back in, and apparently, I think they recorded this in a single take. That's fucking crazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you talk about kind of virtuosic performance and whatnot. So, yeah, I just love the kind of different layers you can explore through just one song and all the intersecting stories that that, that connect from it. <laughs> ¶¶ 
my favorite song off of here, I think, is going to be Butterfly. Oh, right. um, and I think partly that's because in some ways it's perhaps one of the more conventional mm-hmm. songs. It's it's a ballad. Um, the groove is a little bit sparser. It reminds me more of something that I might have heard on Headhunters, whereas songs like Palm Grease, which we haven't talked much about, uh, or, or Spankalee, which we heard a bit from before, were for me perhaps just a little too frenetic or mm. maybe also too funky, which is funk spelled with the O, <laughs> which I think is... <laughs> That's the dark side of Oakland funk yeah, is, is when a, it becomes Oakland yeah, funk. Yeah, yeah. You know? I agree with you. Yeah. But Butterfly just has this beautiful, just it just has this beautiful groove to it. And it also, the song yields my favorite moment off the album, which comes towards the end of the song. And there's a bridge where suddenly everything gets stripped down and you hear the main theme return. Parts of it remind me of something that maybe the Mazel brothers might have produced for Blue Note in that mm. same era. And this this point in the song in particular, and I mean this in the best possible way, but it's sort of what I want to hear if I'm sipping a cocktail at 8 p.m. <laughs> yeah. That has some place with low lighting but a really nice view. And yeah. that just seems to be kind of capture that. Do you have a favorite moment off of this album? Oh, man. That's a great question. It would be somewhere in the peak of Herbie's solo in... Um, actual proof when you can't it's it's and it's kind of hard to figure out where you are in the track and then Mike and Paul hit that boom 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 and then it just goes right back mm-hmm. into the thing so it'd be like towards the kind of like peak of Herbie solo where you're just like where are you in this and then they, they anchor catch you back the, and they anchor you back in yeah. where you're just like how are you guys doing I don't understand how this is happening you know going to music school you would I would hear students people who are just, you know beginning their musical journeys like try and play this track and it's just like man you realize how hard it is to do what it is that they're doing and not make it sound bad right by the way, I always imagine that at music schools, and this is someone who hasn't gone to one, so this is pure invention perhaps, but I always just think of them as being very staid and, and very conservative and traditional. So I'm just wondering, an album like this, was was this something that your music teachers would have encouraged or embraced? No. I mean, this was like, my experience of music school was, one, it's kind of unnecessary. <laughs> like, if you can play... You go for a semester, you get the experience of meeting all these other players, and then you realize, oh, I'm good. I'm going to go leave and get a job. Like, I'm going to be John Blackwell. I'm going to play for Prince or whatever it is. Or you really dive into the, the, the knowledge that you can't get otherwise, which is like the more producing and the technical aspects, which I was interested in but not super interested in. But for me, the experience of music school was like this kind of free exchange of ideas mm. and a, and a really cool like meeting of the minds. The the thing that I really appreciated about it was like being able to be like, hey, it's one in the morning on a Friday, let's jam in a practice room and yeah. just like work this stuff out. Yeah. That was that was really cool. You know, and learning about how to say stuff with music. I think the I've wrote about I've written about this, but like the the biggest lesson I learned was it was like freshman year I I got into I 
had I my audition through the audition process I had scored high enough to be in a jazz lab mm. and we were playing some like blues in F whatever and I was taking my solos and usually you would take two choruses and then single out and then the next person would be would come in and so I took my solo signal to come out and then the teacher was like no you're going to keep going mm. and so I played another chorus and I was like I'm going to come out no you're going to keep going and this went on for like I don't know like I probably took like legitimate like a dozen choruses on this tune mm. and I realized through that process that like everything that I knew how to say on my instrument was basically like a half a chorus of a, like a, of a, I needed to figure out how to say stuff on my instrument so that I wasn't just like mindlessly recreating riffs uh, and that was like a painful lesson but actually a really good one like have something to say within or else you're just going to sound like you're noodling and you were playing guitar yeah so was there a point where the music teacher threw a guitar at you? Like whiplash no, that style? Never. That, it, it, <laughs> that never happened. It never happened. Is there a contemporary artist that you would want to hear take on any of the songs on here? And what would the song be and who would the artist be? Oh, man. I don't... Th- no, I don't think it's possible. You know, like, I've got, I got really into, like, post-rock and math rock for a little while. I, one of the albums that I put forward was a, a Toe record. Toe mm-hmm. is, like, this kind of weird math rock Japanese band. It'd be cool to hear them, their take on music like this, but on the other hand, I think it's really a moment in time that has passed. You know, like, I don't think anybody could could try and recreate this right and maybe it's partly because and this is not to say that compositionally these are not great songs but it really marks a moment in time Mm -hmm. i think we've been talking a lot about this throughout throughout our episode that what you can hear in it besides the musicianship it's also thinking about the trajectory of where jazz and and pop music was going at this moment in the mid-70s but it's not like in and of itself such a great fucking tune that you want you necessarily need to hear it done in 2019 or 2020 or whatever Again, this is, to me, the pinnacle of this particular form of exploration. Right. And it's kind of, that's it. Yeah, it, It's reached the end of its evolution at this point. Mm. This is the highest it's going to get. If you had to describe thrust in three words, what would you choose? Funk, well, uh, improvisational funk perfection. Mm, I like that. For listeners who really liked Herbie Hancock's Thrust, we have some recommendations for what you might want to check out next. And for me, I went to one of my favorite jazz albums from 1974, so the same year as that Thrust came out, which is Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson's oh. uh, Winter in America, uh, which is, I mean, we could have done a, a whole episode just about that album. Yeah. It is it is such a heat rock as well. A, such a sublimely soulful and melancholy album that's also very deeply social, spiritual, and personal and political you my lawyer you my doctor yeah but somehow you forgot about me and now now when I 
Jason, how about you? Where, where, where would you tell people to go next after Thrust? Well, I would, you know, pick up Headhunters, the, the album that really kind of preceded this and, and is a landmark album, I guess, of the form yeah. and certainly a landmark jazz record, um, highly sampled and uh, the simpler version of this record. Right. I think a lot of people describe Thrust really as kind of like a part two or part B yes. to Headhunters part A. Yeah, yeah. That will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Jason Concepcion. What are you working on now? Oh man, binge mode. We're doing binge mode Star Wars. And so we've begun rec- the recording process on that. Explain binge mode real quick. So binge mode is uh, Mallory Rubin, and my co-host, and I diving deep into a particular subject, usually fantasy-based. So we started this with Game of Thrones. We did one episode per episode of Game of Thrones analysis, kind of critical and critical analysis and jokes. Uh, then we did uh, a Harry Potter section where we explored all the books and also the movies. And now we're doing Star Wars in a similar yeah. fashion. We're exploring the movies, some of the extended universe stuff, and comics, um, character studies, etc. Normally, we would ask you for what your contact, where people can find you online. But I mentioned that in the intro, which is that you are on uh, Twitter, on Network, and the second E you place with the three. I've always meant to ask, what what does that symbolize? Where did that? Where did your Twitter that's handle my, come from? That was my um, my Xbox Live gamer tag. Boom. <laughs> where else can people find your stuff online? Um, it's that's it. Check the ringer.com and YouTube for NBA desktop coming back uh, as soon as the NBA season comes back. Yep. And hopefully we win another Emmy. That's yeah. All. all right. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. Jason, thank you so much for coming through. Thank you. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. And I know I usually try to come up with a pun here, but Thrust is only four songs. I, I just couldn't do anything with it. I'm so sorry. I've been long overdue in thanking our reviewers on iTunes. Just this past week, we had J-Pod Blue writing in to say that they enjoy the deep dives and that our podcast is, quote, great for long commutes, unquote. Glad we can keep you all company in your cars out there. We also had Not A Dad write in to say, quote, we are the best podcast out there. It's that simple, y'all, unquote. Indeed, it is that simple. I'll take that. We are the best podcast out there. If you have not had a chance to leave us a review on iTunes, please do, because it is a key way that new listeners can find their way to us. One last thing. Here's a teaser for next week's episode, which features myself and guest co-host Ernest Hardy speaking with artist and author Tisa Bryant about the Emotions Smash 1977 album Rejoice. It's probably the the sweetest and most emotionally enriching album I can think of. Mm. Um, it's unfreighted. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. there were so many other albums I could think of that had a kind of weight to 
my life or something happening. And this album isn't marked for me um, by anything but joy and possibility and aspiration because those voices, you know, right, as right. a kid, you know, who wouldn't want to sing yeah. one of those parts as well. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.